Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to Michael Gould-Wartowski, who is the author of The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement. Michael's book is published this year by Oxford University Press. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with him. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I have the pleasure to talk with the author of The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement, published this year by Oxford University Press. Michael Gould-Wartowski, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the program. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Before we get to the book, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. You, like me, are are both New Yorkers, I think, at least in residence. Um, but tell us just a little bit about uh, where you are now, where you've been, any affiliations. Uh, share with us a little bit. Sure. So, uh, yes, I'm a, I've been a New Yorker uh, pretty much all my life, um, and I'm a, currently a Ph.D. fellow in sociology at New York University. I also hold a B.A. in government from Harvard University, uh, where I graduated in 2007. Of course, I graduated into the Great Recession and um, uh, got kind of swept up in the events that followed uh, with um, the Occupy movement in 2011-2012. Um, and uh, just kind of honed in on on some key questions that had been, um, I think, uh, unanswered, left unanswered by the academic literature as well as by the media narrative. Uh, yeah. And, so yeah, that's where I am today. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I was just so curious about how this fits in. If, if this is your dissertation, or if this is a piece of your dissertation, we can talk about that at um, as as we go. Sure. Um, but let's actually let's let's talk about the book itself. Um, I think your book does a really good job of explaining the roots of the Occupy Wall Street movement. So before we end up in Wall Street, before we come to Manhattan, what came before this? Um, what were the predecessors kind of ge- uh, geographically, but also in terms of where it, it took its inspiration? So give us a little bit of the background. That's right. So uh, let's recall the, uh, the conditions and uh, the kind of dual crisis um, that we were seeing in 2011, 2012. Um, on the one hand, uh, the, the sort of unwinding crisis of, uh, of financial capital and, and the crisis, uh, economic crisis that had extended uh, to basically all but the, the top 1% of the income and wealth distribution. Um, and uh, you had that on a global scale. So um, there was, first of all, halfway around the world, a wave of occupations that set off revolutionary events uh, with what's known as the, the Arab Spring, although it extended well beyond that. And um, there was a kind of Mediterranean spring as well with uh, another wave of occupations uh, spreading to um, cities in Spain and Greece. And actually, New York City had its first one in uh, June 2011 over uh, an austerity agenda, a series of budget cuts uh, that were about to be made. And so this was a really a dual crisis of, um, of financial capitalism and also of representative democracy, as a lot of uh, young people, especially in uh, many of these um Societies facing the aftermath of the crisis um, did not see a, a future under the, the current regime. And, and so they um, there were regimes successfully overthrown in Tunisia, Egypt. Of course, uh, these were qualitatively different uh, contexts, but they were they were the, the source of inspiration and really had a demonstration effect on many of the occupiers who would uh, become uh, the occupiers of Wall Street in uh, September 2011. And, and what about the 99 percent movement phrase? 
You also talk a little bit about where this comes from. What's what's its history? Right. So the uh, the ninety nine percent movement, um, and and this is the subtitle of the book, um, and that is it is the identity, the collective identity that was really taken up at the time uh, by the participants in the movement. So I want to go with that self definition, but um, it came out of uh, poor people's movements in New York State and uh, other other places around the country, but specifically an occupation of the Capitol building in Albany, New York, um, in March two thousand eleven. Uh, was then uh, sort of taken up by the New York City General Assembly, which respend, uh, responded to the call to occupy um, in August 2011. So that was a, a kind of transition from um, uh, a very kind of local grassroots uh, struggle against austerity uh, to, to one that was much more generalized and was targeting, of course, um, one of the great uh, capitals of capital in the world, right? Um, and so the 99% became a meme. It became a narrative that... Uh, allowed people to to identify uh, who was on their side as they saw it and uh, was on the other side that is the 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 1% that they identified with um, the kind of uh, with with the responsibility for the crisis um, and uh, and and with responsibility for the conditions that they were facing um, and who were taking home at that point 95% of the gains from the economic recovery. So this was really a, a story that uh, that hit home for people and people took up uh, the we are the 99% um, uh, identity and um, and it, it really became uh, a point of unity that was long absent, at least in the political left in the United States, um, and really extended beyond uh, what we know to be the left to a, a much larger base of people. Now, protest movements are almost always studied post hoc, either through uh, retrospective interviews or ar- archival material. Your method in this book is is very different. I wonder if you could talk to us about when it occurred to you that you could participate in this Occupy movement as a scholar. Um, maybe you could tell us also just a little bit about sort of how, uh, how you first became aware of it and, and when sort of the, the wheels started to turn that this was something that, that might be linked to what you could study. That's a, that's a good question. So, so this, is a, this is a participant observation uh, study. It's, it's what I call a motive uh, embedded inquiry. Um, and, and this required uh, participation ob- observation um, in the fullest sense of the terms of participation and observation. I didn't realize that I was going to write this book until after uh, the eviction of, of, uh, of Zuccotti Park in, in New York City, also known as uh, Liberty Square at the time. Um, but I did have uh, ethnographic notes, field notes. Um, I did have uh, photos and, and many hours of footage. Um, and I had had interviews from the square uh, during the time that it was occupied. I just I just thought that this was going to be an important moment um, in our social and political history. And I wanted to document it um, just for, for the sake of documenting it. And then uh, when I realized uh, that I could I could also do a study uh, that critically reflected on it and didn't just kind of um, wasn't just an archive, but also uh, an analysis. Right. Um, I thought that there was an analysis that was lacking at the time uh, from from much of um, the coverage and, and for much literature. So I wanted to make whatever contribution I could make by drawing that all together into a synthesis um, that gave me a participant perspective, but also some uh, some critical perspective on uh, relations within the movement as well as relations between the movement and the state. So one of the fascinating parts of your book is how you explain the very specific tactics that protesters use to, um, to, to adhere to the restrictions that the police had put in place. And so, um, uh, what were some of these restrictions first? You know, what, what were the restrictions on the protesters? And and then what were some of the tactics that were adopted to adjust to these conditions? You talk about some of the communications tactics, some of the, the hand gesturing. Walk us through some of the, the, the really what it was like to be there and, 
and what was what was actually going on? Uh, that's right. So you know, we we often get this um, this bird's eye view without actually seeing the um, the the social relations and and the um, the kind of uh, political power relations as well within um, situations like this. Of course, there's a, a basic uh, asymmetry of power between protesters and police, especially in New York City. Um, and uh, this is one block away from Ground Zero. This is um, a, a, a kind of stone's throw away from the gates of Wall Street, which which were shut down, um, and and uh, traffic was very tightly regulated from uh, September 17th on. Uh, so so the, what was initially intended as an occupation of Wall Street became more of a metaf- metaphorical way of of saying um, we're, we're we're occupying uh, near Wall Street. So um, the the occupation was contained pretty quickly. Um, but for for whatever reason, it, it was sustained over the course of two months. And I think you know, I, I really get into some of the political uh, struggles that were occurring uh, also within the municipal governments and, um, you know, between uh, different agencies and authorities over what to do, because this was a, a privately owned public space, as it's referred to. So there was no real uh, roadmap for how to how to manage, how to, mar- you know, how to sort of um, organize um, a, a space there that was that was being occupied. So. Um, the police department initially uh, just kind of set up a perimeter and, and eventually um, day by day started imposing further and further restrictions. So restrictions on, um, you know, people could use amplified sound. That those were some of the first arrests. Um, and so as a, as a result of that, um, the occupiers turned to the tactic of the people's microphone, which allowed them to communicate by echoing and call and response back to each other um, and communicating very effectively, I think, um, you know, within the parameters that and the constraints that they were facing. Um, another example. Uh, but before you yeah. go, just tell us how that actually works. I think most people wouldn't wouldn't quite know what what you mean by this. So, uh, logistically speaking, how does this people's microphone work? That's uh, that's a good question, and, and the, the dynamics of it, the, the sort of mechanics of it, are are one thing that um, I tried to to describe um, in in the book. But um, basically, uh, one one individual uh, who would like to speak and would like to be heard. Um, in the occupied square would say mic check uh, that this is a, a phrase that's inherited from the world of hip hop music um, and would be echoed back uh, with a, another person saying mic check. And then other people would realize that there was a mic check and would echo it back. And so every um, line or every few lines uh, that uh, someone would, would speak, you know, someone who would normally not be heard across the square uh, would be projected, you know, through many voices. Um, in, in sort of waves, at least uh, up to three waves across the square so that everybody could hear what they were saying without uh, putting people at the risk of arrest uh, for that particular offense. So there were all these kind of creative tactics and techniques that people came up with. And, and this was one that was replicated all over the country um, and the world, actually, uh, and still is being deployed today in, in today's protests. Another aspect of the book that, that I was very intrigued by was was the coalitional nature of, of Occupy Wall Street and also the factions that emerged. So how unified were these protests? And, and what were some of the dividing lines that, that, that uh, uh, started to emerge as, as things progressed? That's right. So from the first, um, this was at first an assemblage of uh, sort of far left factions that, that didn't normally work with each other or even speak to each other. Um, but I think in the context of, of this, this crisis and uh, specifically around the time of the debt ceiling deadline, which you remember was um, a very polarizing moment um, politically. And uh, on, on the day of the debt ceiling in, in 2011, um, these, these rival factions of, of anarchists and socialists um, and sort of unaffiliated um, 
uh, young people came out to to this first uh, New York City General Assembly uh, to oppose uh, what they called the austerity agenda and, and the um, this this one percent power that that was beginning to be uh, one of the major sort of themes and tropes uh, here. But the one thing that that drew them together was this oppositional uh, politics, this opposition to the politics of the of the one percent as they saw it, and um, this marriage of state power and corporate power. Other than that, there was there was much that um, that they disagreed on and. and um, there were many, many uh, c- points of contention and, and contradiction. Uh, so uh, the, the question of whether uh, an occupation was the right thing to be doing in the first place, uh, the question of uh, sort of how do how how, if at all, do they relate to the police? Uh, do they communicate with the police? Uh, the question of, of, of permits and, and tactics and, and what kind of um, what is permissible and what is not. Um, and, and even the question of whether there should be any organization at all. Uh, sort of driving this thing. So uh, those were were some of the lines of um, the fault lines uh, that really divided people from the very beginning. And, and those fault lines only became deeper as, um, as as the pressure mounted from the outside. One of the things I think that we sort of conventionally know, but that you also reflect in the book, is is the very amorphous and, and somewhat almost purposefully unfocused nature of, of the, the Occupy movement. And and, you know, a very purposeful attempt not to have a single leader emerge to speak on behalf of, of the group. Very democratic in that fashion. But it, it does lead people to to ask the question related to success. I wonder if you've thought about at all how successful the Occupy movement uh, was or, or is. How, how do you think about success? If some of our our, our typical notions about social movements and political movements don't quite fit here. Uh, for instance, uh, how many people were, were newly elected based on their affiliations with this? It really didn't work that way. H- how do you look at success and failure related to the uh, Occupy movement? So I think the question we have to ask is, is successful at what? Um, and of course, uh, by the conventional metrics of, um, of, of both uh, social movements in this country and, and social movements around the world, as well as... Um, uh, 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 even those of, of more more limited scope uh, than this one, I think you know it doesn't really meet uh, the criteria for uh, a successful social movement by the conventional metrics of, of what constitutes a conventional a successful conventional social movement. But I think that um, my, my one of my points in the book is that it, this wasn't in and of itself a social movement, uh, but rather Occupy was a moment in a much longer wave. Um, of, of mobilization, social and political mobilization. This particular moment was a kind of, uh, uh, it, it was one that provided a, a locus for sort of people to meet for, for face-to-face convergence. And it was also one that provided a focus uh, for, for people to act, for collective action. Um, and so that's, it was also a moment when the media was actually paying attention. Um, so, so that, you know, we, we, we don't identify the longer arc because it kind of re- very rapidly faded from view. Um, but I think that if we look, um, even right now with the, the fight for 15 or, or um, the continuing attention in the presidential race to, to income inequality, which was also a, a theme in 2012. Um, I, I wonder whether uh, these, these kinds of frames and these kinds of uh, this kind of politics would have been possible without the Occupy moment. Um, and so I think it's still too early to tell or to, to say definitively um, at what, you know, what place in the causal chain uh, we can locate Occupy Wall Street. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, it certainly uh, succeeded at changing what people were talking about. And I think that's not what change looks like, but it's a precondition uh, for change. So uh, perhaps a, a necessary but not sufficient condition. 
So um, this is such an interesting book, and, and I'm sort of very fascinated with where this fits into your own scholarship. Um, is this your dissertation? Is this a piece of it? Um, maybe we can sort of wrap up by you talking a little bit about where, where this fits into your own sort of broader agenda. Absolutely. So um, this, is, this is not my dissertation. Um, it's, uh, it's certainly related, uh, but it's, it's, my dissertation is on um, uh, the topic of, um, of immigration and uh, of, of movements surrounding immigration and state-society relations around the question of immigration. So um, the way that I see this fitting together is uh, we're, we're looking at um, sort of different responses uh, to uh, the economic and political crises that we've seen over the, the past uh, decade or so. And I think that uh, the the uh, the politics of of the 99 percent is is a a kind of it's one that aspires to some kind of universality. It's one that um, asserts that uh, that there can be a sort of um, political progress in the the fight for um, greater social and economic equality and and for some degree of of political power for the majority of the country, which is uh, the criterion for for um, uh, democracy, as we know. So this is um, this is on the one hand a, a response to. Uh, the crisis of represented democracy uh, that we see in the Occupy moment and also in the, the disenfranchisement of millions of um, of people who consider themselves Americans and, and uh, by by all accounts uh, are Americans. So um, there's there's also the question of criminalization, which connects the two. Um, and there's the question of, uh, well, what will uh, what will the future of, of um, sort of the political left in this country look like? And I think Occupy um, and the, the immigrant rights movement provide two. Uh, different faces of, of uh, two different dimensions of what that future might look like. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And your book, uh, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement, uh, published this year by Oxford University Press, is widely available. Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me.